Welcome again to another edition of Big Ideas in App Architecture. I am thrilled today to be joined by my good friend, Yolanda Davis, who is Principal Software Engineer at Cloudera, focusing on the Cloudera Dataflow Operations Team. She's the team lead for the Dataflow Operations Team. I had to look at my notes to get this correct because I didn't want to mess up the, the long title. But Yolanda, uh, welcome to the show. Very, very glad to have you on. Thank you so much, Tim. Oh, you're you're quite welcome. So, you know, in previous episodes, the way we usually like to get these started is just to, you know, to learn a little bit about you, about your background, about how you got in uh, to this this crazy business of of leading teams, building applications. Um, I, you know, I you and I've known each other for a while, so I have a, you know a little bit of history. But I would love for you to share kind of with the audience, you know, a little bit of the Yolanda Davis story because uh, it is so interesting. Yeah, well, I was one of those kids in the 80s that really tinkered with computers. Actually, my mom, uh, she noticed, okay, I love Barbie, but also I was dissecting Barbie. I was taking apart Barbie's cars. <laughs> and so my mother being a social worker, she's very aware and, you know, and, and observes a lot of things with kids. And she said, okay, you know, my daughter's a little different. Uh, let me see what I can get her into. And she saw, um, she didn't know at the time that the computer itself was going out, it was being discontinued, but it was at an affordable price. Have you ever heard of the Atom computer? Uh, it was sold at like an equivalent of a best buy, I think it was called best back then. And she brought that computer home and I was just all in. Uh, I didn't know there was such a thing as being a computer programmer, but I knew I wanted to figure out how to make this thing work. And I was about nine or 10 years old at the time. Um, fast forward to when I was going into college, I actually went as a mechanical engineer, spent a good two and a half years hating it. And that's no shade to anyone who is a mechanical engineer. But I always thought <laughs> that engineers, uh, that eventually they would write programs. So that's why I got into it. And um, a good fr a friend of mine who, uh, at least in college, we were in the same scholarship program. He looked at me and was like, you hate engineering. Why don't and you talk about computers all the time? Why don't you become a computer science major? And I was like, wait a minute, what? <laughs> that's a thing. Because this is 1996. I didn't know that you can actually go to school for that. And if I didn't say it already, this is at the University of Maryland College Park. I'm a proud Turk. And that changed my life. I talked to him that afternoon. I made a call to the dean of that school. I got transferred the next day and the rest is history. Uh, so I have been an active developer since 1998 with, I think, for looking back on it, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, Tim, even before you and I met, gosh, it's been almost 14 years, Tim, since we worked together. But before then, I had spent some time working for the state at the University of Maryland while I was getting my first master's degree. Uh, I switched and worked for during the dot com era. I was working for one of those type of companies doing uh, a bit of application engineering support type deal. Uh, I spent some time as a subcontractor with the government, done things with the uh, gosh, it, it's been a while, but several different agencies there. I was a consultant for many years. So within that six year time frame, right before you and I met, I did everything from working with small companies, startups, uh, you name it. But the single thread that has been consistent for me in my career up until the time you and I met is I loved programming, but I really loved working with data. 
And so a large part looking back on things was I was even writing reporting tools or uh, systems that would integrate data. You know, way back when I worked with MQ series in order to do, you know, basic kind of uh, enterprise messaging and that sort of thing. Uh, ordering systems. Uh, and you and you and I met when you uh, interviewed me. Uh, it was around, I think the first project you had me do was visualizing data. So I always had that knack. Uh, and and I, I uh, tie it very closely to one of my favorite classes in undergrad, which was database. And uh, may rest in peace, Dr. Jack Minker, he was renowned in like that area. And that was the first class when it just clicked for me. And so I just took that everywhere I went. But I didn't want to be like a DBA. So I found positions and opportunities where data was always central to that. So um, once you and I started working together, you know, I always talk to you about kind of um, I'm like this new area of big data, you know, at that time, this new area of data science. I wanted to get all in because I always saw it as like the next phase. We have always had this history of how to best manage data, how to make it perform well in terms of when you need to search and query things. And of course, there's always been um, technologies like uh, OLAP, I don't know if anybody really uses that as much, but um, at least the traditional sense, where you wanted to create these warehouses in order to do some analytics on it, understand like current state and maybe trends. But now with that introduction of big data, it got into what I was always interested in. It's like, how can we, you know, forecast or figure out and predict what's going to happen? And we also, you know, you and I, we watched the technology change and shift, right? So once you and I uh, parted ways, but for a moment, I spent some time, <laughs> but for a moment. Just, just a moment. Yeah, I spent some time. I, I went to uh, Concur that was later bought by SAP. Uh, because I wanted to kind of chase that data journey for myself. I really wanted to get into data science. I was still kind of taking a class here or there. And then finally, here you come again, <laughs> grabbing me again <laughs> for an opportunity at Hortonworks where, you know, it was like, a, oh, you know, if we, if we last this long, <laughs> that'll be good enough. But, and, and I really weighed that opportunity because I, I was at a place where I saw a lot of potential in how Concur used, you know, from the travel perspective and that reporting perspective. But then there was a difference between that and working with the people that are creating the software and the technology and getting into that space. And so my thinking then was, you know, I'm going to take a huge risk because I didn't know any of the stack at that time. I knew how to, you know, write applications, but not, you know, when it comes to distributed platforms and everything that supported, it was all net new with a very trying project, right? But we figured it out. And so my first phase at Hortonworks was, as you're aware, on that professional side. Uh, and I spent nine months as uh, working on that PS side, but then the kind of balance there was, okay, I'm understanding the stack a bit more, but do I really want to get on the road? But then while uh, at Hortonworks, there was a little company that everybody was talking about internally called Anyara, uh, who was led by uh, Joseph Witt. And next thing you know, Hortonworks buys Anyara, uh, which uh, they have a lot of specialists, specialists who were part of the committers of the Apache NAFI project. And uh, while I was still in professional services, I thought to myself, are there opportunities for me to land in engineering uh, where I could contribute? And then 
now that this new um, NIFI team was formed, uh, they were looking for people to work on front end or back end work. And I'm like, okay, I, I've done both. I love data. Uh, Apache NIFI helps to solve the problems of how people will obtain data from various sources and route them with some level of reliability with the interactive command and control, which is kind of key there, you know? And, and I said, oh, this, this is a good opportunity. And so I've been kind of hanging out with Joe Witt and uh, the rest of his much larger team than when we started ever since, even though now, um, since Hortonworks merged with, with what we now know as Cloudera, uh, and it'll be eight years in June. It's it's an amazing journey. And I, and I think, I, I know for a fact that, that the Cloudera team and certainly Joe Witt's team is incredibly fortunate to have you. I mean, I've said this to you before many times, I mean, you're one of the most gifted you know, all around engineers, I think I've ever met. I mean, I don't think there was ever a problem we couldn't kind of put in front of you. It didn't really matter what the space was, the technology was. It's like, if Yolanda is on this problem, it's going to get solved. Uh, and so I know I know they're very lucky to have you. I appreciate that. But I also, the, the, the strengths on this team has been outstanding. Um, I started off even going from PS into uh, more of a senior role and working my way up. But the strength that I think I was able to exercise is the ability to collaborate well. And so there, there's a huge uh, difference when you have such a strong team um, and solid leadership uh, that makes all the difference in the world, I think. So I, I know you and I both know a lot about these two, you know, about, you know, Apache NiFi and, and, and certainly Cloudera. I was a, a Hortonworks employee myself for a long time, but maybe just for the audience who may not be as is well educated and versed on these technologies. Can we just, I mean, maybe give us just kind of a, a brief overview of like, you know, what, I mean, I, I know it came from Anyara, but kind of what is the the problem space? What is Apache NiFi out there doing? You know, what is it trying to solve? And then maybe we talk a little bit about, you know, kind of how it fits maybe into the overall larger kind of Cloudera product offering. Because I know they've got that, that's evolved quite a bit over the years as well. Well, I'll start really how NIFI was formed. So NIFI, the project itself kind of came out of the NSA. If you can imagine, they're in the getting data business, right, for various reasons. But uh, those who started that project, they were trying to solve this problem of they were writing code to all the time in order to create jobs or whatever streams of data to get data from, whether it's a database or some other external resource and land it to someplace else with some level of reliability. And some people who were involved, they, they would always have to go to a particular person or go to a particular developer. And so Joe and folks basically said, well, what happens if we were to make it a lot easier for people to design how they want to uh, transfer data from one place to the next, no matter what the um, source or the sync will be. And to make it very simple, have this interactive command and control, how it's called, uh, or just a user interface to do that work. And it's a little bit different from if you've ever worked with some uh, older school uh, reporting systems where, or, or ETL jobs. I know we've worked with some in the past where you have something where you design the job, the workflow first, and then you kind of submit that job and then it executes. Well, NIFI is different. It's interactive command and control. So you can design how, where you want data coming from, how you want it to land, the level of reliability or retries all within that uh, platform or within that UI. And then you can say, I want to run it immediately without kind of submitting some job. And that's what kind of distinguishes it from like traditional ETL. 
yeah, there's like very much like a real time aspect to it. So like I can, you know, I get data flowing through the system and I can kind of drag these widgets around. At least this is my recollection from a couple of years back, like, you know, drag widgets around. I can, you know, kind of add forks and joins to this stream of data. And I can do that all in real time as opposed to, you know, in effect, defining some job, compiling it, you know, pushing off to server. I've got like this interface where I can watch this data kind of move back and forth. And I have complete control in real time on kind of where that all lands. And that is what is a a huge distinguisher between NaFi and a lot of other kind of similar products where you have to have like a programmer or developer. And so what this does is it takes it out of that maybe traditional data engineering team. And now, like, for example, you know, we haven't gotten to it yet when it comes to the data science stuff I do on the side. I can put it in the hands of a data scientist that, you know, where they just know simply how they want to set up the data, where they want their data to land. And so it basically uh, broadens your user base and simplifies these things that you find yourself uh, creating over and over again. I think that was another thing, too. Like, you know, I'm doing these same activities over and over again, same sources, same things. Uh, and NIFI kind of brings all of that together along with some of the guarantees and reliabilities that we would expect ensuring um, that when you send a message, it will be received and how you can set up those guarantees for delivery. So that's, that's it at like a very, very high level. Yeah, it's it's really cool tech. I mean, you know, I was using it years ago and thought, I, you know, was really blown away by it. I, you know, and I know it has to have evolved and, and grown even since then. You know, and I would imagine too, and, and you would know better than I at this point. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of other people kind of claiming to do the same thing. But I think the interesting thing about IFI, at least, from my perspective, it was kind of the first. I mean, don't you think it was kind of like the first in the space that was really, really targeting this like, hey, I'm going to make this super easy, you know, to kind of organize, you know, the flow of data in my system. Yeah, it was definitely the first. And, you know, early on, it might have been 50 different uh what we call like processes or different sources and things. Now you have hundreds that the community has contributed to help go from, you know, any types of points of, of sources and things that you can possibly imagine. And um, you, you can also think you have, you can also expand to say, it's not just about sources and, you know, data at rest, so to, so to speak. It's also, if you wanted to kick off another job or integrate it with other kind of downstream, more, you know, streaming applications, um, machine learning APIs, you know, there's a whole broad uh, possibilities with NIFI. And and to answer the other side of the question, like how does it fit in the Cloudera ecosystem? Really, you see it almost like the the in the beginning of the story, right? When it comes to the hybrid cloud or the hybrid platform that we talk about, if whether or not you're on a cloud or you're um, in private space, how can you connect the dots? Like we are in the middle of that. So it's not just the story of land everything all in cloud air. We know that's not the whole truth, right? People will have uh, different aspects or use different providers for different things. And so NIFI, can, it helps to serve that bridge to send data to all different types of places, especially within the cloud. So I think that's why it's a, a huge part of our broader platforms uh, story. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think what we're finding, you know, certainly, you know, even though I left Hortonworks, I'm still very much in the data game. I mean, Cockroach being an, an operational distributed database, I mean, even it needs kind of 
you know, solutions like NiFi because, you know, data is a little bit everywhere now, like as you kind of, you know, hinted at. I mean, there there's data in in relational or operational databases, there's data in analytics, there's data in, you know, streaming technologies and, and you know, it's just kind of out at the edge and centralized places in the cloud. I mean, and 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 moving data between those places, keeping a, a handle on it, understanding where it's going, rerouting it if necessary to other places as new technologies emerge. These aren't simple problems to solve. And I think especially, you know, when you get to data at the scale that Cloudera is operating, Hortonworks was operating, or, you know, massive amounts of data, you know, you need to, you need to have this like really efficient kind of command and control. And, you, you know, you've mentioned resilience and reliability a lot, you know, and it can't go down. You can't lose data. Can't Data can't like end up on the floor. This can be really, really important stuff. And also to add to the story, we're talking about NAFI and this interactive command and control, but that's not the only part of the, the NAFI story, right? So there is Minify, which is also part of the project. When we talked about uh, a smaller, lightweight form factor of how do we capture data that is out there on various devices. Um, and even now we have uh, the support of NiFi as a function. I think we call it internally, but basically how we can run uh, NiFi within uh, the Lambda space or the serverless space. Oh, really? Yeah, really. So uh, there's, there's a lot of different form factors that NiFi comes in. And uh, some of those things are even more actualized within our CDF product, which, you know, uh, we, we actually offer. Of course, NiFi itself is available as an open source. However, within Cloudera, our cloud offering is Cloudera Data Flow, which is powered by Apache NiFi. So um, we uh, support uh, almost like a platform as a service aspect of uh, delivering NiFi, and it allows people to deploy their flows. Actually, we have something now, a more recent release has what's called the Flow Designer, so you can design and deploy your flow within the cloud-based environment. Um, and, and without and we having have to operate your own infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, that's a huge thing. I mean, it's part of my operations lead, uh, my team is charged with how NiFi operates in the cloud and some of the scaling and, you know, observation or monitoring that we do. I was going to ask you to maybe go into a little bit of kind of what your current role is, because, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning, you've you've been at Cloudera for eight years. You've, you know, you started in professional services uh, with me and have gone on to to much bigger and better things. So what? T- tell me a little bit about the current role, because I know you're doing, doing kind of some more of operation stuff, maybe less less engineering than you had originally been, but I, I don't want to describe it for you. I want you to tell me exactly kind of what what the, the role looks like today. Oh, sure. So I would say my role looks like it's more of setting a vision for and supporting and mentoring my team in terms of how well we can operate NiFi in the cloud. And what I mean by that is it is not just ensuring that it uh performs well for flows, but it also, uh, what does that look like, right? Uh, how well does it scale in order to meet whatever amount of load? And, and what does the scale look like, right? Whether it's horizontal or vertical-based scaling. And um, I know everybody talks about observability. I just want to get monitorability <laughs> in place. So we're trying to, we're always reviewing like what metrics do we expose, uh, which is one of my, uh, one of the people on my team, they're doing now, they're exposing more metrics such that we can not only uh, take advantage and uh, you know see what's going on from a if something is going wrong perspective, but also uh, I have a huge interest in being able to forecast the need. So uh, there are certain 
hooks there that already exist. So for example, for those or anyone who works with Kubernetes, there's something called a horizontal pod auto scaler, for example, that will allow you to by default configure based off of CPU. But we have a lot more richer metrics to it from the application itself. So we're setting things up so that we can scale on things such as um, if the internal flow gets backed up for any particular reason, being able to scale such that we can handle um, the load that it needs to uh, handle. or um, and, and then once we get to that point, then it's more about, okay, how can we start recommending uh, the footprint based on the load? And, and so all of those things have been, it's been a journey, at least in my view, of set ensuring we have the right infrastructure. So I know you love to ask this question, Tim, what are we using behind the scenes? So we use heavily and rely heavily on uh, tools like Prometheus uh, in order to collect our metrics and we don't, we're, it's not there for like a long lived, you know, history of metrics. It's really more of kind of like a short term collector for long term goals, right? So I, I, we use it in order to collect the metrics and then uh, alert on issues, but also we react based on those alerts. So it's not just showing to the user. We might put things in a particular state based on an alert. Um, and, and as I mentioned, we're going to be scaling based on, you know, other things that metrics find. So a lot of the work that myself and my team does is part of that story of how well um, NIFI behaves from a scaling perspective and being able to project that. And then the other side, too, um, and, and I will not this is the area I say I am not the expert, but I did a great job <laughs> in, as well as my managers in interviewing uh, folks who their background were creating um, applications that basically um, support NIFI within the cloud. So, um, which is based in Golang. Uh, I have, you know, some of the Golang, but I made sure it's, uh, some folks on my team were the experts. They've been doing this for several years in creating operators that know how to um, extend the Kubernetes API such that we can de declare we want a NIFI running. Um, and, and I, I, as a um, kind of journey for me is just understanding programming as it relates to Kubernetes. And I'll say that in that regard, I have learned just as much from my team on the experts on my team who uh, support us in that. It's that tough, way. isn't it? Don't you think? I, no, I mean, I'm not a young person anymore. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it, we, I just, we just did another podcast and, and we, we were kind of closing up on this idea of Kubernetes and it, it's come up in various things. I mean, I struggle with it. You know, I, I struggle with the, you know, the terminology, the API, the, you know, because, you know, at Cockroach, we've, we've dabbled in building various operators and want to extend it and do all this other stuff. And, and so my team and, and I have, you know, at, at various points had to dig deep into, to Kubernetes, you know, I, I fancy myself a reasonably intelligent person. And I, I you know, I, I sometimes read about this stuff. I'm like, what the heck are they talking about here? I don't, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's going, you're going into a declarative mindset. I think that's the kind of the very, at like the lowest level. And the way that I, at least once, when it started resonating with me, which is when I understood, oh, databases are declarative too. So like SQL as a language is a declarative language. We're not writing, you, when you run that explain plan and see everything that's doing behind the scenes. Um, and then also understanding that internally, it's like a state machine, right? It's always trying to maintain state. And so the code is structured in that way. And I think for you and I, that's like a game changer. It's a mind shift. Yeah, I, it, it has been tough for me. And to the point where like, I now I'm just like, okay, I'm going to let somebody else like really yeah, get into these so details. Cause I just, I've been like, I say, I'm probably now 
only in recent time. I mean, if my team watches this, they would laugh because they know. <laughs> Have I really kind of been in that reconciliation world, you know, in the operator? But at the same time, I I look at it at the overall vision. And, and so as long as, because there's certain fundamental things that I know it should do. Like I need to ensure that persistence is there, right? I need to ensure that the networking considerations. So like when they would raise anything up to me, it's just, you know, you, you still go to the foundational things that make sense because once you spin the, once you figure out how to spin the thing up, right. With your <laughs> operator, there, there's still certain things that it just should do. And so a lot of times when they would talk to me, it's about those things. I'm like, okay, you know, are we dealing with mutual TLS when we talk between one component and the other, you know, it, it's those sort of things. But I, I just always walk away feeling like hey, it doesn't have to be this complex. Like it would have just been named a little differently and it would have made a lot more sense. You know? Know every, you know, at this stage of the game, <laughs> like I'm okay with not knowing everything, but I, but what I do need to know is at the end of the day, does it help to solve the problems that we want to solve? And when it comes to the world of Kubernetes, in terms of the level of reliability that the platform offers or the framework offers, um, and it comes to some of the self-healing traits that we know we want to take advantage of, right? Especially when it comes to how well we want to perform. We just kind of have to roll with the punches. And honestly, I'm not mad at it internally operating as like a state machine. I mean, at the end of the day, it's, it's your job is to always ensure that it's at a particular state. That you know, the how it does it is just, it gets interesting. Um, and then Golang is just, you know, Go is just the best language to it. I, I, I took, I got a certification in it, but I don't, did don't you? I did, but it's like, Ooh, it's a whole other, <laughs> it's a other ball game. So, you know, cockroach, uh, DB is written in Go. Yeah. Yeah. I remember. And, um, so I was like, I, you know, look, I'm going to order the book. I'm going to read the book. Amazon shipped me two for some reason. So I have two copies of the Golang <laughs> book. I, I haven't gotten to read the one of them, not that I would read them both, but because of the same book, that would be silly. But I, you know, they sit like in different corners of the office and I think, well, if I'm over here, maybe one day I'll be inspired to, to progress. I, I don't know. I, as a, as a longtime Java person, yeah, no. I, you know, maybe I'm just getting too old for it. I don't know. It just, I, I want to learn it. I, I think I should learn it. I think I can learn it, but I haven't done it yet. And Kubernetes is the one thing that's kind of pushed me in that direction, given some of the operator work, because all the operators are written and go. So, yeah, I, the classes, mind you, what I took was more on the Coursera. It's like I took that certification, but the the style in which I use for those type of things is different from the style and the frameworks, right? It, there's certain things where I would look at Go and I'm like, I'm probably not going to use this or need this. And even in the, you know, uh, the code base that we have, I'm like, we never use that stuff. Um, but I'm, I'm sure there are certain applications of it would absolutely, you know, make sense, especially some of the event things that uh, you can do with Golang. Uh, but I sometimes I do put it on the level of Scala where, you know, when I did Scala, I've done it a couple of different stints and I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree so with you. Scala is super powerful. I, you know, I have a better appreciation for it now when I've seen it used in the context of data science in some of the libraries. But it's so powerful. You can really get yourself messed up. And that's where I'm like, I don't like getting in trouble with languages. And I can see myself getting in trouble with that one pretty easily. Um, so I want to go back to, you know, because you're working really closely with the observability. Observability is such a hot topic right now. And I mean, I know it is for us. Um, and just kind of curious what like the overall, like your overall thoughts on observability and it's important to kind of products and development or, or you know, maybe Cloudera's overall philosophy. I, I just know a cockroach. I don't think there is a, I don't think there is a customer we've had or a prospect we've talked to that isn't 
you know, curious about our observability story. I think it's like, you know, five, 10 years ago, we weren't asking these questions. You know, I don't remember, I don't remember us ever worrying too terribly much about observability, but, and maybe it's longer ago than that, but you know, now it seems like it's one of the, it's one of the hottest areas. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on it? Oh, well, personal hot take. I think observability is huge because we're more in the cloud and it's just harder to see things in the cloud. Um, and just to, just to kind of at least level set on how the observability I work with different from like data observability, right? So I'm focused more on, you know, watching our components, what we use operationally, um, which is different from watching data and the, the history or the provenance associated with data. So, but I personally think because it's so hard to see things in the cloud in interoperability. And, and when we talk about observability, I hone in more on the ability to monitor first, right? Which is kind of like a sub, I think is a subset of that. Because, and the, the, the things that I know I've read, which I, I personally agree, is there is a subset of things that you know you want to monitor, which is different from um, having access to things of, you know, such that, or making your application such that it can be observed in metrics that you might not know about and the things that you might need to discover that you're not aware of. And that's an interesting balance in the cloud because eventually that data has to go somewhere and it costs money. So for us, uh, so when I think of the CDF like story from it, observe and, and how we can assure that our product is working well. It's ensuring that, okay, can I, you know, how well is it running? Well, first off, is it working? <laughs> I know that seems like, well, isn't that just like the bare bones? Is yeah, but on? you'd be surprised because there's a difference. You know, parts of the application might think, oh yeah, that's up, that's oh, running. That's a huge issue. But it's, it's a huge exceptions issue. And you don't know it, right? So how do you monitor that? Like, how do you even know? So just um, finding new ways or additional metrics exposed just to get that information. Uh, and, and so that is kind of at least the story as uh, I'm working with my team to improve how well we monitor things. And then not only seeing what's happening right now, but then the ana ana analysis, right? So when I want to get these metrics, even if things aren't going, you know, are, are fine, how can I collect that? Where is it going to go long term? Um, Thankfully, we take our own medicine, so we do use Cloudera Data Warehouse in, um, internally, which is our kind of data warehouse um, product. And uh, I know that I can send some of that data internally such that I can start analyzing, you know, for some customers, you know, that's, that's the growth plan. But overall, at least I want us to get to a place where we can anticipate what is going to happen and not only anticipate apply immediate re remediation. That is what my opinion is the real story is because you can watch it all you want. What are you going to do about it? And how are you going to eliminate a human from doing the action? And, and that that is really my vision for how we operate is really for us not to have to call support or a customer not have to. Um, you know, there, that we should get to a place where that is rare and either allow, uh, empower the customer to take an action or better than that, automate that action, um, whether it's through a scaling, whether it's through an auto-tune kind of, you know, we've had some recommendation based on how you're running, we're going to change the footprint. And, you know, the pie in the sky is how can we adjust or tune your flow or make recommendations? That, that's, that's really where the, the superpowers come in. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think I was sharing with you when we, we met earlier. I mean, I, meeting with Andy Pablo, you know, who's a professor of databaseology at Carnegie Mellon, you know, he's over the last couple of years started this company called OtterTune, which is looking at, you know, using AI to, to monitor databases to, you know, to determine which knobs to tune, you know, to gain efficiency or performance. I think, I think this idea of this combination of observability plus AI to not just alert you that something's wrong, but like to take decisive action you know, on your behalf to either, you know, make an improvement or, um, you know, uh, eliminate failure or, you know, a- anything. I think this is to me where, you know, where I think the future's headed. Yeah. And not even failure, um, cost mitigation, right? So now we're looking at, you're not just scaling in order to handle for performance, but you're also scaling in order to fit within a reasonable cost point. And so I think it has um, tons of uh, potential. Um, well, and I think, you know, cost, you know, we talk about this a lot and, I, and I'm sure, you know, you all are talking about this a lot of cloud here. I mean, we're talking about data, right? Data is the lifeblood of most organizations today. And, you know, if, if data becomes unavailable, if it's corrupt, if, you know, e- even if it's not down, but, you know, the response time for the tools that rely on this data is so slow that it might as well be unavailable. I mean, these things have real cost. To businesses, you know, if I've built an infrastructure on cockroach and cockroach can't respond, that's a huge problem. If I built an infrastructure that relies on NiFi to to move data and NiFi goes down, this is a huge problem. It has real cost associated with it, and I think I think that's maybe the I don't know if this is true, but you know, just reflecting back on my own career, I don't think we thought about it that much twenty years ago. Maybe I didn't. I you know, it was just like, oh, these things are going to work, and I'm not worried about it. But boy, lots, a lot more online today, I think. Well, I think too, if just looking back, at least you know, beyond when you and I work in the educational space, the type of software we were building, the risk wasn't as high. Right. And a lot of times we would work for a place and they were the consumers of that software. But, you know, wherever we worked. But when you get into a space where you're creating software where others may use some things which could be mission critical. Uh, and to say it that way, you know, the, the federal government is also a customer of ours. Right. So there might be things that we don't know about where reliability could be a huge risk and it's just not a monetary loss. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's not that those concerns didn't exist. I think now um, the scale of those concerns is a lot broader. I think so. I, I, I think it's. I think it's. It's. It's very true. You know the the scale and just how important data is to to, to more and more organizations. You know, it really is like the lifeblood. And I think, again, failing to keep it consistent, keep it alive, keep it available, it, it, huge impact. So I wanted to switch gears on you just a little bit. Um, well, not not too terribly much, but. Um, you know, you were recently went back to school. Yes. Um, uh, at a certain age, I laugh now. Thankful is done <laughs> for now. For now. But I, you know, I I'm curious just a little bit about. I mean, you and I've talked about it a, a bit here and there. But you know, just you know, just for the listeners, I mean, you know, what what did you what were you going back to do, and kind of you know, what was that experience like? Because I know there are a lot of people who who get to our age and are kind of like, man, I wish I could. You know, I don't want to say hit the reset button, but you know, like that, this, you're always learning, always should be learning. So maybe just walk us through kind of what that was like, where you went, what you did, what you learned, and what, what ultimately you want to do with it. Yeah. So, I mean, to kind of pick up where I left off, at least on my data interest story. So while at now Cloudera, uh, even though I'm within the operations team, I thought I would have an opportunity to, as I work with my team and as I help develop these products or this product, 
I thought I'd have an opportunity to really understand a bit more about data science and machine learning. Um, and I just didn't have a structured way to do that. I'm the type of learner where I either I'm going to have a class, which, as you know, I was always taking some sort of course. Like I always took some course with someone somewhere. And I've done that for as long as I can remember, especially since college. And so I got to a point where uh, at least in my career within uh, Hortonworks slash Cloudera, I was a manager at the time before I switched to be more of an IC slash principal where I was working with NIFI, but in a different vein. And I was like, I'm not getting any closer to my goals that I, I, I came here with, which was to learn more about data science. And so I decided to go back to school. I evaluated several programs and I specifically landed at the Harvard Extension School, which is like the remote uh, program for Harvard uh, under the Harvard uh, University system. And I, I, chose Harvard because they allow you to try it before you buy it. So basically their, <laughs> their model was you could take, uh, I think it's still like this, two classes. And if you do well, that's part of your acceptance. And so I'd already got into a known school uh, with a great reputation, but I wanted to be able to try the program. And what was great about it, it was extremely rigorous. I was questioning my decisions, <laughs> but I made it and I, and I did well in it and it, and I wanted more. And so it was one of the best decisions I feel like I made. And it, it took me three years, but I graduated uh, all of the degrees that the extension school uh, issues is, uh, ALM, under or it's, it's a master's of liberal arts in extension studies of whatever subject for my subject is data science. And it allowed me to take classes, some of which who were um, joint offered under Harvard University and then some were um, under this extension program with people in industry, because that to me is the most valuable. So uh, I took everything from uh, early kind of data science, like just putting a process to the work. Uh, it is completely different from software development as a process. I think of it more of being like a scientist in the lab. You're going to have a hypothesis. Sometimes the data that you have is going to allow you to achieve that hypothesis. Sometimes it's going to disprove it. Um, so it's more like that kind of mode. And then I took a lot of different things under data science, um, which I feel is like a hodgepodge of, I know it's a hodgepodge of different areas. Uh, so I've taken an AI course, I've taken um, deep learning courses, I've taken uh, deep learning for NLP. And I found that where I lean towards the most or the things that excite me the most is less about some of the things that you see now with deep fakes, so less about um, computer vision, or uh, generative-based models, um, but I do have um, predictive analytics-based things. I'm very interested in taking like regular structured data and just getting insights there, but I'm also interested in um, natural language. Um, I had an awesome professor, Chris Tanner. He was a lecturer at Harvard. I think he does stuff at either Stanford or MIT. I'm sorry, Chris, if you're watching this, uh, but he's really <laughs> like, because I know sorry, he, he's, moved, he's moved to a couple of different uh, universities in the Cambridge area, and I learned a ton from uh, his class in particular. But um, to answer your question, like uh, where I see myself going is I'm signing myself forward again to it. I'm going to try to apply <laughs> to either a um, PhD based program or doctorate really? program. Yeah, I, I, I am learning that 
there is still a huge space for businesses to really understand how to apply this research and not jump on like the next hot thing. Um, there's a lot of considerations around ethics in AI and, and bias that can be introduced that I think is very important um, and, and almost paramount for businesses to understand and, and incorporate into their process. I think there's opportunity to grow within that space and contribute in that space. Um, and I think actually you don't know about this. Uh, part of one of the last things that I did at Harvard was working with a small nonprofit called WildTrack. They actually do uh, work with um, detecting endangered species uh, through tracking their footprints using machine learning and computer vision. And so I'm continuing my work with them on the side as if I have, don't have enough things going on right now. So um, but but. Um, so another part of my interest is helping nonprofits uh, get on board with this technology because they're doing really cool space, uh, cool things in that space when it comes to echo diversity and just applying uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. So, yeah. Um, and then in my day to day, like I was telling you, us forecasting scale, like that's how um, that's that's the road. That's always been the road for the last two years. And now we have a lot of the pieces are in play to uh, leverage, like how can we use time series based data in order to inform how we scale um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, it's a lot of different applications, but I'm crazy. I'm, I'm, my hope is next year sometime I'll be shaking my head in front of some, <laughs> some professor <laughs> at the right age of 48. <laughs> it's amazing to me. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's so impressive that you you know, you were able to do that and wanted to do that. You know, it, it's so important to keep learning. And there are so many fascinating things out there in the world. It's amazing. I mean, the amount that this field has changed, even within the last five years, Tim. And, and well, so to be prepared, like my thing is to not as much be up on the technology, but to have a strong foundation for it. But that's no different from when you and I started, right? And, yeah, and no, got our I degrees. No, I, I, I agree. But I think, you know, you know, you kind of mentioned it like kind of this, you know, ethics and, and, and some of this AI and biases. I mean, I, I think there's a real, there's a real kind of potential growing problem there. I mean, it's, yeah, you it's, know, I, it's not just growing, it is here. Um, yeah, it's, um, it, it's pretty fascinating stuff. And I think, you know, these are disconnected things. But, you know, certainly things like chat GPT, which you, you hear about more and more is, I, I think, you know, but one extension of kind of this growing dependence on on artificial intelligence, machine learning. And, you know, and those are all driven by by data sets that um, that may or may not carry with them, you know, kind of. Yeah. Embedded <laughs> biases, right? And so, embedded biases. And, and there's not a lot of governance there. It's right not now. a lot. They're definitely not like a broad governance. There are definitely people who are on the ground kind of fighting the good fight. Um, Timnit Gebru, uh, she has an organization that's focused on this work and studies there. She actually, ex-Googler, created her own kind of research foundation to do research within this area. Uh, Joy Bulamwini, she's also um, somebody who put this on the forefront in terms of facial recognition. And, and so there are, and those are only two people that I can just off the top, uh, who are not only vocal, but are challenging from a policy standpoint 
putting checks in place. But for now, um, the best thing for businesses is to be uh, forward thinking. Uh, if they are creating models, do you have model cards? If you're creating uh, model cards, which basically describe, uh, here's what this model does. Here's the risk of using this model. Here are the data sets that were applied. And even those who contribute data sets, uh, having, I think it's called data sheets, uh, or data cards that basically describe what's the risk of using this data. But on top of that, too, there's certain techniques around debiasing uh, that can be employed. That was one of the things that I learned uh, that I didn't know about going into the Harvard program, that that was such a thing. I always thought, well, you know, it's the a factor of the data that you use. But there are also techniques that people are using to actually debias models. And I think uh, the, the moral of the story is I think what will be important moving forward is kind of the grassroots effort, um, businesses willing to follow these particular standards so they won't get burned, quite frankly. So it won't come back to them like it has for several of even the bigger players out there. Yeah. And I think, you know, and it's it's just a, it's important when we're going through these kind of very, I think, transformational periods, certainly related to technology, that you do kind of take a step back and say, you know, Yes, it's important to move really, really fast, and and I think a lot of people are doing that. But you know, with all of these innovations, you know, some good can come of it, but some harm can come from it too, as well. And I think, you know, it's just it's important. I think be very mindful, you know, as 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 companies are adopting these new technologies, and and that they're not recreating some of the challenges of the past. You know, I think it's being mindful, but also make it part of your process. Right. You can think, oh, yeah, I should do. But part of your process should be if I'm creating a model, understanding its usage, understanding the risk, build that in as part of kind of whatever auditing or part of your development process or your um, model development process. If that, in that way, just like our software, you know, lifecycle, how your development process, it becomes a built in thing that is checked for as opposed to, you know, something that maybe somebody might add and somebody might not. Yeah, no, I think it's really important. Well, I know we're kind of running up on the top of the hour and I don't want to take too much of your valuable time, you know, so maybe as we kind of, um, kind of bring it in for a close here, you know, are there, maybe it's two questions and, and maybe it's one answer, maybe it's two different answers, but, you know, just curious as you look forward to this year, obviously you've accomplished a lot, you know, with the, certainly the degree from, from Harvard and all the things y'all are doing at Cloudera, but what, you know, what are some things that you're looking forward to kind of in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, whether it's you personally, whether it's, you know, it's at Cloudera. I mean, what are some of those exciting things on the horizon for you? Oh, well, I would say for me, I'll, I'll speak to at least within Cloudera, within CDF, some of the things that I'm excited about my team. We're now getting into a space where we can do predictive analytics within the ecosystem. So even though it's not quite what someone sees when they interact with it, it's more of having more a greater reliability and be able to um, project scale. That to me in the next 12 to 18 months is paramount. It will hit the nose on what, at least for me in my role, I've envisioned since the end of 2020 of terms of possibilities of what we could do. And then um, outside of that, for me personally, I am super intrigued, even though it's a lot of checks and balances. But when it comes to like chat GPT, there's a lot of things that people are doing that are, I'm like, man, if this was around, I would have done it. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, gosh, uh, Victor Divya, he is a researcher at Microsoft. He actually uh, ex-Cloudera 
And uh, he recently came out with something that allows you to automatically do exploratory data analysis. And anybody who does data science, they know, like one of our early steps is you want to analyze the data set that you have and generate your visualizations and give some summaries on things. Well, he, uh, I think he created something that built on top of uh, a large language model to generate, you tell, you tell it, hey, I want you to create uh, this EDA, you give it a data set and it spits it out. He just published a, a paper on that. And I was like, I want to try these things. Yes. Um, so like there's, there's like all these different applications and things that I would love to get into. So my hope is by 12, 18 months, you know, I could figure out how to either tap in uh, to that technology or even empower, like even if it's the day-to-day -day work. And I do have some internal thinkings for NASA, but I'm going to keep that one to <laughs> myself <laughs> uh, of how that could apply. Uh, but yeah, we've seen some interesting things that uh, large language models can do in that space. So that, that might be a thing as well. You never know. No, I, I agree. Yeah, there's some fascinating, I mean, I was just at the Gartner conference in Orlando a couple of weeks ago and the, the guy that in the booth behind us had, he was using kind of a chat GPT style interface to just query databases, you know, and it was just like, you know, SQLs of a very natural kind of way of communicating with, with data, with databases, but, you know, just spelling out in, in, in English language, you know, what do I want from the data? And then it, it returning kind of in, in narrative form, as well as a table of the data, as well as the SQL query used to execute it. I thought it was incredibly yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's very cool. And kind of like, at least the study that I did empowers me with, okay, now I know how that works. And so like the, the growth path for me is, okay, how do you take research like what uh, Victor has done and others and apply it to like, you know, various things that maybe is, you know, net new or how can we build upon it? So yeah, it's, it's very cool stuff seen in action. Well, Yolanda, as always, I, uh, I really enjoyed our chat today. Thank you so much for joining, uh, the podcast. Um, hopefully we have you again on again sometime in the near future, it but this was a, a blast it would be my uh, pleasure. talking to you as it always is. Likewise too. It's so good to see you. Thanks as always for listening to the Big Ideas in App Architecture podcast. If you like what you heard and want more, tune in to our webpage linked in the description below. Give us a rating of five stars on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll talk to you next time. Thanks. Bye.